We're talking about uh, cultural or social realignment today. We're returning to, not from, we're returning to social realignment. Some things have changed. They've been changing for a very long time, by the way, many, many years. But in, in recent times, they've come into focus. And uh, what I want to do before I get into the message right now, I, wanna, uh, I, I, want, I don't want to stop during the message and give everybody credit for every quote I'm going to use, but so much in this message comes from other sources. And I want to I give you these sources so you can go read them or listen to them or watch them yourself. And you're going to watch and say, boy, that's what Pastor Phil said. Right, I copied it. I, 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 I didn't plagiarize it, but I just stole it from, <laughs> from some very brilliant people and brilliant thinkers. I, didn't wanna, I wanted to make sure that, uh, that I wanted to make sure this message wasn't just my thoughts. I wanted to make sure. So here's uh, Tony Evans. He's the man. I mean, he's awesome. Surviving in a declining culture. Alistair Beggs, great pastor, preacher, uh, Dare to Be a Daniel. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is a book by Dr. Carl Truitt. You can also find some short videos of Dr. Truitt. It's a pretty, pretty thick book, so if you don't have time for that, there's eight videos uh, on the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Seven Lies Your Kids Will Believe Unless You Do Something by Elizabeth Urbanowitz. It's outstanding. And uh, you can watch that in one place. is a, a, a YouTube video with Mike Winger. I'm going uh, to use a little Mike Winger's material today. And here's an essay called The Hierarchy, Inequality, and the Mystery of Male and Female by Dr. Mary Ford. And uh, if you will email me, I will, uh, you will not be able to find it. It's one of those academic articles buried deep in, uh, in uh, academic uh, literature. But if you will text or email me at pastorphil at bccma.org, I will send you the essay, and you can read it for yourself. I believe, this, I believe we need to develop the Christian mind. And I believe the evangelical church, as much good as we've done in the world, we have neglected our minds. And so that's kind of what my, one of my goals in life, is to help believers develop their ability to think. How many believe it would be a good idea if we, we learn, all learn how to think? All right? Yeah. Um, so this series is built on Luke 4.14. Can I have that water over there, somebody? It's right there on the floor. This series is built on Luke 4.14. I set out to revisit 2020 and have us decontaminate ourselves from the distress of our times. Uh, I've drawn a parallel between Christ's 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days of hunger, isolation, demonic attack, and... Uh, uh, in our trying time. Jesus stood firm on God's word. He didn't give the adversary one inch. And Luke 4.14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Note with me, he, he not only returned, but he also returned to something. He returned to a culture that was rejecting the ways of God. He returned to something. I call what we are returning to social realignment today. It, uh, a good illustration would be Rip Van Winkle. Rip Van Winkle uh, is the story of the guy who up in the Catskill Mountains of New York uh, drank some really powerful home brew and, <laughs> and, and slept for 20 years. And he woke up, his beard's too, really long, and he goes down the mountain and he goes to what, what, what was formerly um, uh, King George's Tavern, and it's now General Washington's Tavern. 
what happened? He slept through a revolution. He saw the results of a revolution that he didn't participate in. And isn't that the way some of you probably feel about the culture right now? All these changes and all these different ways of saying things and believing things. And, and now you've got to be careful not to say this or that or you will offend somebody. You might even lose your job if you take certain positions. And a lot of you are going, where was I when all this got decided? Where was I when they made all these decisions to change the rules of culture? That's kind of what happened to Rip Van Winkle, and I think it's happened to many of us. Society's rules and social order had changed while he slept, and it was very disorienting. Let's go to Daniel chapter 1 to see a great and godly example of how four young men, many people believe they were teenagers, at least they were very young adults, Four young men handle one of the most radical social realignments for a devout Jew whose parents had drilled into them Deuteronomy 6.4 from their very infancy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jewish people say that every day. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your heart, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Think of this contrast as we read our text in a moment. Realize that these devout and godly Hebrews had just watched the Babylonians completely deconstruct Israel, their country, home country. They watched the murder of their king and his sons. And they had been transported to live and serve in this polytheistic, which means many gods, this polytheistic pagan culture with a totalitarian government. Talk about returning to social realignment. They are exhibit A. And I want to use them as an example today of how we can do this well. I believe the church of Jesus Christ. I believe serious followers of Christ. I believe good humans who want to live by wisdom. I believe we can do this really well. And I believe no matter what we're called to do, we're called to do it well. But I love the verse that I did not include it in my sermon today, but uh, uh, th that verse in the Old Testament, it's talking about all of David's uh, soldiers and mighty men, and it mentions one group of mighty men, the men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what to do. That's what I am, am preaching to this morning. That's what I am counseling to this morning, that we understand our times and we know what to do. By the way, cultural realignment is not all bad. Uh, you know, uh, can anyone say bell-bottoms? <laughs> can anyone say shag carpet? Does anyone want to bring those things back? Though, no. cultural realignment is not all bad. In fact, the cultural realignment that we're going through is not all bad. And even those things that you and I, many of us, myself, maybe you don't agree, but have gone too far, weren't, they're not totally bad either. They have, they have a nugget of truth. They have something in them that we do need to learn about. And, and I, I, I've tried to really learn to let the culture teach me to be more sensitive. Because in my Christian bubble sometimes, I will become very insensitive about things. And, 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 and in my baby boomer bubble, <laughs> in those two bubbles, man, I will become very insensitive about some things. And the culture will slap me in the face once in a while and say, you need to, you know, 
you need to you need to be more sensitive about issues dealing with issues dealing with women, issues dealing with people of color, issues dealing with uh, people who've chose a different lifestyle that maybe you don't agree with and you can't applaud, but 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 the culture says you need to be more accepting and you need to be more sensitive. Hey, listen. We've got to become learners. We can't go around being arrogant. We have to become learners, even with things we don't necessarily agree with. Amen? Let's read it. Daniel 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year, the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Note that. Some of the articles from the temple of God those he carried off to the temple of God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. This is very important, that point. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. These guys are going to be given high-level government jobs. Keep that in mind. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some, of the, some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. Keep their names in mind this morning. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Meshiel, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Here's the verse, part of the verse I really want you to get. Circle this. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself this way. So today I want to talk to you about foundational cultural shifts, a righteous reaction, and God's divine guarantee. Let's look at the shifts. Are you doing okay out there? All right. The narrative we could talk about, or the story, or the worldview of this pagan culture they went into. Polytheistic, as I mentioned, many gods. Intent, they were intent on global domination. It was a completely opposite worldview to the godly, or what we're going to call theistic view, world of boundaries and blessings that the four Hebrew boys had grown up and they had known. And guess what? They weren't, they weren't the home team anymore. They no longer had home field advantage. You know, you need to understand, we Christians, evangelical Christians, we're not the home team anymore in the, in, in the, West, in the Western world. We, don't have, we no longer have home field advantage. When I was in the elementary school, our teachers opened every class with prayer and a pledge to the American flag. I saw a guy yesterday driving along. I come up behind his pickup, of course, pickup truck. What else would have an American flag in the, in the bed? And it, it, I realized how life had changed yesterday. As I looked at the guy, pickup truck, American flag, I know two things about him. I don't even know the guy. I know he's a conservative, 
and I know he voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> is, that, is that amazing? I don't know if you should be applauding. I don't know why you're applauding, but we're in a cultural shift. We're in, a, we're in, a, we're in what they call a sea change of ideas. So it's our situation. Let's talk about worldview for a minute. Let's talk about the lens that we see the world through. Let's talk about, the, uh, you want to call it the narrative. Everybody loves the word narrative today. Let's just call it the narrative. There's the narrative. James Anderson, from his book, What's Your Worldview, writes, A worldview is an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters to us. Your worldview represents your most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the universe you inhabit. It reflects how you would answer all the big questions of human existence. The fundamental question we ask about life, the universe, and everything. Is there a God? If so, what is God like, and how do I relate to God? If there isn't a God, does it matter? What is truth, and how can anyone really know the truth anyway? Where did the universe come from, and where is it going, if anywhere? What's the meaning of life? Does my life have a purpose, and if so, what is it? What am I supposed to do with my life? What does it mean to live a good life? Does it really matter in the end whether I live or not I live a good life? Is there life after death? Are humans basically just smart apes with superior hygiene and fashion sense? Or is there more to us than that? In modern culture, there are four basic philosophical worldviews. There are more than this, but there are four basic ones. And the first one probably represents many of you here today is theism, T-H-E-I-S-M, theism. Theism is the belief that an infinite personal God exists both beyond and in this universe. In this universe. Theists like myself, we hold to a God-centered worldview and common core beliefs. That we believe that God exists beyond and in the world. The world was created by God, and it, if, if, you, if you want to sound intellectual, it's ex nihilo, which means not eternal. The world is not eternal. Miracles are possible. People are made in God's image, and there's a moral law, and rewards and punishment await at the end of the journey. That's a theistic view. There's another view that you may not be familiar with. It's deism. Deism. Deists believe God exists but doesn't get involved in the affairs of humankind and we must rely entirely on human reasoning. It, deists believe that God created an orderly world to operate on its own. Many of our founding fathers in America were deists. They believed it was a closed system. God created the world, but it's up to us to run it. <clears throat> But then there's another point of view that's very popular today. In fact, it's probably the one that many, many people have. It's called naturalism. You might, some people would call it atheism, but it's not that simple. Naturalism is, says matter is all that exists and, and the world is understood through science. Biological evolution has replaced the creator as the first cause of the universe. That's naturalism. Naturalism leads to another ism, and it's called existentialism. Existentialism, I meant to say. Can everybody say existentialism? Existentialism, life has no class. Existentialism says life has no objective meaning, so significance must be subjectively created by the individual within themselves. 
There are various kinds of existentialism, but the garden variety of existentialism believe there can be, be meaning to a meaningless world if we create that meaning by being true to ourselves. Carl Truman, in his excellent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says, the authentic self is the one whose outward actions are the expressions of inward, uncoerced instincts, thoughts, and desires. The idea that human beings are most authentic when their inner life is lived outwardly without oppressive interference from the society at large. Caitlyn Jenner is free to be herself, to be authentic, to be outwardly who she's always been inwardly. Instagram and YouTube, he says, have created a world in which life is performance art of the manner in which reality television projects the idea that outward expressions of inward thoughts and feelings, however crude, is a sign of authenticity. This leads current culture to claim certain things. Number one, if you feel it's true, it must be true. So follow your heart. Now, we, if you think about it, you're going to have some problems with that. If I were a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and I put on a white robe and a hood, and I plant burning crosses in front of a house of a person, a family of color, black or Hispanic or Jewish family, would you say... That's okay, Pastor Phil, that's his truth. That's his reality. You can't question his reality. That's his truth. That's what he believes. That's what he feels. Or, or suppose that uh, three p- people went up in an airplane and they were all going to jump out, which I don't know why anybody would jump out of a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> but three guys are going to jump out of a perfectly good airplane and one guy, puts, one guy has a Superman suit on because he believes he's going to fly. Another guy has a space suit on because he believes he's going to ascend when he jumps out of the plane. The third guy has a parachute. Which guy do you think will most likely live and breathe the next day? Believing you will fly And thinking you will fly will not make you fly. Believing you will ascend because you have a a space suit on will not make you ascend. There has to be objective truth. Another move of our culture related to this unhooking ourselves, unhitching unhitching ourselves from the transcendent, is happiness can only be defined as an inward sense of psychological satisfaction. Now that's a powerful truth that's happening, that that, that your happiness is defined by your inward sense of psychological satisfaction. In fact, most of us probably think that way. And it's not altogether evil or anything like that. It's just different. It's different than the way society thought for a very long time. Dr. Treeman talks about this when he talks about his father. His father was a sheet metal worker in England and worked in a factory, and he said, if you asked my father what, what, about whether he was happy in his work, he would say, oh yes, my work provides money to put a roof over our head, provides food for our children, and, and shoes for our children, and food on the table, and yes, I'm very happy with my work. He said, if you ask me, are you happy with your work, I would say, 
you know what? Yes, I get a kick out of teaching students and seeing them respond to what I'm teaching and getting on board with me. It, it makes me very happy. We have shifted from happiness being a sense of general well-being to happiness being purely an emotional feeling, a psychological feeling within us. A third way that we have changed... Uh, 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 by the way, I, let, let, me, let, me, let me stop on there because I, I see something else I want to share about that happiness being an inward sense of psychological satisfaction and why, it's, why it falls short of the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with having inward psychological satisfaction, by the way. We all want it. We all achieve it. We all love it when the stars, the planets align and we feel great. Isn't that, isn't that awesome, you know? But, but the Bible says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's that, that is defining what the Jewish people call shalom, which is inner, inner and outward peace. Happiness, let me say this, happiness is when we sort ourselves out so we're living in harmony with God, other humans, and ourself. Joy, Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy we used to sing when I was a little kid. And it still works today. Number three, love. I'm talking about what the culture believes. Love is affirming everything another person feels. That's love. You are unloving if you do not affirm anything another person lives. But is telling a lie ever the best thing to do? Example, example, Jesus and the rich young ruler. In Mark chapter 10, he came to him and said, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus said, you must sell all you have to give the poor. The Bible says it this way. Let me give you the way the Bible says it. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus, it says that in the Bible. It always amazed me. Jesus looked at him and loved him. We, we kind of sometimes think of Jesus as this stoic character walking around saying things from God and saying wisdom and stuff, but not really feeling emotion for people. But Jesus had deep emotional feelings for people. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at him and loved him and told him this one thing you lack. He did not affirm everything that the rich young ruler felt. The Bible says that young rich young ruler went away sorrowfully. So you can't separate love from truth. It's not judging, it's called thinking. I sat with a man, talked to him extensively one night a few months ago, and we talked about his chosen lifestyle. And when I expressed him my beliefs, he, he brought up the word judge. That's judging. And I, 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 I brought up to him a lifestyle that I knew he would disapprove of. And I said, what if I, were, what if I was, and I, I don't want to get into the, uh, into the explanation of everything. But I, I said, this lifestyle. And he said, I said, would you disapprove of that? He said, yes, you would be wrong. I said, well, are you judging me? So I said, no. I said, you know, sir, I'm not judging you. I, in fact, I said, you know, I cannot judge you. I have no ability to judge you. Only God can judge you. And that's going to be done at the end of our lives. And if you feel and believe and you've studied the Word of God and you've prayed and you really know that you're right, go for it. You're going to stand before God. I'm going to stand before God. And, you know, I'm sure that many things I'm going to stand before God and find out I was wrong about. 
So no, I am not your judge. I don't want that job. I've seen the, I've seen the judge's job and I don't want it. So now let's move on. Number four, the physical world isn't any longer sending messages from God. The world is not speaking what Romans 1.20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Our culture, see, firmly believes that humans are the product of unguided evolution. And, and a lot of us mistakenly think that the belief in evolution just permeates the public school classroom, but this belief permeates every corner of our society that we live in. Darwinism has replaced intelligent design and the belief in divine being in, in, the, in the public imagination. Every commercial, every movie, songs, everything. Uh, a creationist professor will not get hired in a secular university. As far as I know. Now, you may know examples of that, but I don't, I don't see it. There is a, there is a uh, I, I forget the term, but a theistic evolutionist, I think is the term, uh, at Brown University. I forget his name. So uh, maybe it does exist, but not very much. Let's move on. Existing authority structures and hierarchies are instruments of oppression. Except the one that I'm creating, of course. <laughs> Dr. Mary Ford writes, we can't avoid hierarchy. So Christ reveals the only way of having hierarchy. I'm talking, when I use the word hierarchy, I know it's not a word you use every day. It's authority structures. It's authority structures. In the church, pastor, staff, board, where you work, it's the CEO, all those things. We can't avoid hierarchy. So Christ reveals the only way of having hierarchy that will really work long term to eliminate oppression it's for those in the higher positions of any hierarchy to be inspired to voluntarily serve out of love those who are lower. The term hierarchy, you know, was actually coined by a saint named Dionysus, the Aparagite, the Arapagite, in the 6th century. And he stated, hierarchy, in my opinion, is a sacred order and knowledge and activity assimilated so far as possible to God's divine likeness and led up in due degree to the elimination given, given it from God for the imitation of God. In other words, if you will imitate how God handles authority, if you will imitate how God handles authority, you will solve the problems of inequality in the world. God loves so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God, the ultimate hierarchy, the, un, the ultimate truth, the ultimate authority of all mankind, loved, uh, loved those who were lower and loved those who were less to the extent that he gave them his best that he had, which was his son. It is a utopian fantasy that all earthly problems are solved by getting rid of differences, by getting rid of all inequalities, inequalities and hierarchies. God, who does everything for our benefit, confirms in so many places that certain differences, inequalities and hierarchies are built into reality. I'm not as good looking as some of you. It's a problem. God has not made it possible to get rid of all these things. You know why? Because they wouldn't solve the problem. The problem is sin. 
Amen? Number six, the new sexual revolution is about identity and overthrowing all categories. The new sexual revolution isn't merely an encouragement to explore your sexual desires. People have always done that. There's nothing going on with people's sexual experimentation that didn't happen in the Roman and Greek uh, cultures. But what has changed is we find our identity in what brings us sexual pleasure. Once identity is established, it becomes politicized, and being merely tolerant of another person's right to live as they choose falls short of the society's definition of tolerance. Carl Truman says the term sexual revolution doesn't just mean a loosening of standards in all categories. It actually involves an overturning and repudiation of what has been done before on the grounds that traditional morality isn't actually healthy at all. It's repressive. It presents us from being who we really are inside. Liberating people, you know, liberating people from the oppression of Christianity is now a part of many people's social justice conversation. So, that brings us to the last part of this sermon. How should we respond? I don't believe that the church's main function is to fight the culture war. Daniel and his three friends did not march into Babylon trying to necessarily change Babylon. They didn't, they didn't protest. They didn't try to fix that culture. Instead, they show us how to live in that culture. So let's return to Daniel 1 to see what holy resistance to a cultural moment can look like. First of all, we see quiet dissent and the critical role of parents in raising culturally resistant kids. See, Babylon, they were intent on removing every trace of Israel's God from Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Mishael, and Azariah. Every trace. They were, they were intent on completely deconstructing their faith. But these four men had parents who had done their job well. We know that because of the meaning of their names. I'm not just guessing this. Daniel's name meant Elohim which is the plural word for God, sends the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm about to have an exciting moment. I just don't want to warn <laughs> Daniel's name meant Elohim is my judge. Mom and Dad were thinking about what they wanted his identity to be when they named him God. Elohim is my judge. I bet every time little Daniel went off to, to school or went off to do something and was about to do something bad, his mom would say, remember, God is your judge. <laughs> and th- then there's, uh, he, he was given the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Bel was one of their gods. They were rebranding him and re-identifying him as a member of their culture. But Daniel never forgot who he was. We don't have the book of Belteshazzar. We have the book of Daniel. The name Hananiah means, this is another one of the boys, Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh was the personal name for God. His parents gave him the identity of a loving and gracious God. Every time he introduced himself, he was saying, God is gracious. To him was given the name Shadrach, which means friend of the king. 
I'm going to remove you from being a friend of God, young man, and I'm going to make you a friend of the king. I'm going to give you a high-level government job, and you're going to be a friend of the king now. No, he still knew who he was. And we know that later, but what things that happened then. Then the name Mishael means, who is like Elohim? <laughs> what was his mom and dad thinking? To him was given the name Meshach, which means worshiper of Shaq. That's, a, that's another god that they served. The name Azariah means Yahweh has helped. To him was given the name Abednego, which means servant of Nego, which was another foreign god. See, Babylon tried, but Babylon was too late. Mom and dad had established their boy's identity before Babylon had a chance. Are you hearing me today? The home is the most important organization in this room. Mom and dad, you're the most important spiritual. Hold, hold your pause for a second. I want you to pause. Mom and dad, you're the most important spiritual leaders in this room, not me and the rest of the pastoral staff. Now, now you applaud God. Another thing we see with these guys is a commitment to excellence and a cooperative attitude. They marched in there. And now, they were in a terrible situation. I cannot imagine how they held themselves together after watching what they had watched. I can't, it's hard to believe they didn't have PTSD. After the trauma, go read the book of Jeremiah. Read the book of Jeremiah, and you can see what these boys had witnessed and what they had gone through. But yet, their ability to keep their head on straight and, and kind of show up there in Babylon and say, we're going to be the best employees that you guys have ever seen. We're going to knock it out of the park. We're going to be, we're going to be excellent at everything we do. You, we're, we're, we're going to be, remember, remember that story about Tom Brady walking up to, to, uh, walking up to uh, Robert Kraft when he was, a, I think, a rookie, a third string. He walked up and said, Making, dra drafting me is the best decision you ever made. <laughs> I mean, D D Daniel, and I wish I could remember those other boys' names. I can always remember their, their, their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's easy. Uh, I, I, I kind of think those. I kind of think they had a little swagger. We're the best thing that's ever happened to you, and it ended up being true. How are we supposed to act when we don't have home field advantage? We don't have home field advantage anymore. How how is it supposed to act when we're not the home team? First of all, you have to accept things you can't apply. There's a difference. You need to learn the difference between accepting and applauding. There's a difference. I can accept all kinds of things, all kinds of lifestyle choices, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't mess me up or throw me off. I don't, have, I don't have mental conditions called phobias. I can accept, but I don't have to apply. First of all, and secondly, you have to love and serve those you don't align with. Those who, in fact, may hate the people or the God you love. Look at Jeremiah 29.7. Jeremiah 29.7 is specifically written to the, the exiles who were living in Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've called you in the exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it proper, prospers, you too will prosper. 
God has not called us to destroy the world. He's caused us, called us to build it. Amen? So a commitment to excellence. See, see the end of chapter 1. Pardon me, I'm going to leapfrog to the end of chapter 1. Because I'm going to leapfrog over something very important that I'm going to come back and touch on. These four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. I know that's a pretty tough assignment, guys, that I just handed you. But I want you to go to work tomorrow, and I want you to be the, I want you to be the superstar, rock star employee at your job. But there's a reason, and here's what I leapfrogged over. There's a reason that God did this stuff by giving them this knowledge and making them superior. There's a reason. They had to do something first. And here's what they did. They drew a line in the sand. The king's meat had been offered to idols, and the king's wine had been offered to idols and foreign gods, and the articles of the temple back in Jerusalem were being used, and so they were mocking Israel's God. So if they had eaten that meat and drank that wine, they were joining in the mockery of Israel's God. They were asking Daniel and the four, three Hebrew men to join in the mockery of their faith. And Daniel's attitude, you know, their attitude was, we've offered you a job, told you your salary and your perks. You're going to work for the government. All you have to do is eat our idol food. All you have to do is ingest our dismissal of God and the Torah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All you have to do is assimilate our disregard and disrespect for the one who sits on the throne and awaits to judge the world. But remember, Daniel's name meant God is judged. Daniel's attitude was, oh, I'll take your job. I'll take your salary. I'll take your perks. I'll spend your money. I'll be your friend. I'll do pretty much anything you ask me to do. But you're asking me to disobey my God. You're out of your mind. I'll take your job, but I'm not going to give up my God. I'll spend your money. I'm going to do all that. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'll, I'll even support your economic and material gods. I'll, I'll make you successful in the marketplace, but disobey God? Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Daniel didn't say, get that profane food away from me, or everybody who eats that stinky meat and drinks that wine is going straight to hell. He just drew a line in the sand, stood his ground and resolved within himself, here's the line, I'm not going to cross it. Now, we know this was their lifestyle. If you go to Daniel chapter 3, you see a time when the, the three Hebrew men were told they had to bow before the king's idol when the music began to play. And they go, here's the line in the sand. We're going to work for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to make you successful, but we're not bowing. Then there's Daniel. When Daniel was an old man, and, and they passed a law that you couldn't pray to any other God for the next 30 days. Remember that? Daniel chapter 6. Because there were some, some guys that didn't like the fact that Daniel was getting promoted. 
And, the, and, and they said the only way we can get him it has to do something about his consistency and who, is it with this God. So we'll just make a rule because he would open his window every day and bow and, and, and look to the east and he would pray to Israel's God. So, well, th- that, that will get him. We're going to p- have a law passed, have the king pass a law that no one can pray to anyone but the Persian king Darius for the next 30 days. Now, if a lot of us had been Daniel, we would have prayed, but we'd have shut the window. Or, or we wouldn't have gotten in front of that window to pray. We'd have walked around the house. Oh, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. God, we love you. God, we love you. Yes, we love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But Daniel, he sees the ruling. He, he, he watches the news. He, he, he checked his Twitter, and he saw they're passing the law. Next day, he gets his prayer rug. He opens that window, and he kneels down, and he prays. And they threw him, you know, long story. Everybody knows the story of Daniel and the lion's den. They threw him in the den of lions. But the, the lions saw Daniel and they lost their appetite. It wouldn't have mattered. Daniel was, Daniel was going to pray even if he did become a Daniel burger <laughs> through the lions. He was going to pray anyway. It wasn't about, well, I'm going to pray if because God's going to rescue me. No, I'm going to pray anyway, because that's the line in the sand. And I'm not crossing the line in the sand, and I'm not going to let you cross the line in the sand. And, and here's, here's, the, oh, here's the exciting part to this, this. God didn't intervene till Daniel drew, drew the line in the sand. You go back to Daniel chapter 1, go down to verse 1, and you see what we call a now God moment. Verse Nine. Verse 8 is when Daniel said, I'm not drinking the king's wine or eating the king's meat. Verse 9 starts with two words. Now God. Is that, do you hear what's, what God is saying to us here this morning? Verse 9, verse 8, here's the line in the sand. Verse 9, now God caused the officials to show favor and compassion to Daniel. You want a now God moment? You got to have a line in the sand moment. You do the line in the sand, God. You do the difficult, God will do the supernatural. Hallelujah. Do you have a line in the sand? Have you taught your kids to have a line in the sand? Or do you think secular world Governmental leaders hold the key to you and your children's well-being. Or do you think God, do you think you might need a God now moment to make you successful in this life? Let me close with this. You've been very patient listeners. Thank you so much. I'm very lucky, very blessed. I mean, I will get, somebody will tell me I preach too long, I'm sure. (laughs) And they may be right. They may be right. It's with mixed feelings that I talk to you about divine guarantees because there's a bright side and a dark side. It may surprise you what the bright side and the dark side is. The bright side is that although God's people are severely disciplined by him and he used the Babylonians to discipline his people. And I believe God is using the culture right now to discipline the church. I I can't go into that. I don't have time. But I believe God is using the culture to discipline the church. Our whole green room culture and all that stuff, it needs to go. 
But God's children always emerge from a season of discipline better and stronger than before. The church will survive this season of disenchantment, of not being the home team, and not having home field advantage. We will survive this season. Even the book of Revelation narrative has the most evil totalitarianism perhaps the world has ever known. It only lasts a few years. Evil empires come and go, and when they go, it's for good. They don't, they don't come back. But God's church always comes back. My resistance here today is not about revolution, but by warning you of the coming disaster. The dark side is those who reject God, his plans will always encounter, ultimately, the heavy hand of God's judgment. I'm confident about the victory that I know awaits the people of God. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. However, I am concerned and distressed about the judgment that my culture is headed for because we are denying and defying the living God and we're denying and defying the structure of reality. Scripture says, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave, leave it room or leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Remember we talked a few minutes ago about Daniel, his consistency in prayer, the lion's den in King's Dareth. Daniel was an old man when that happened. Listen to me. Nebuchadnezzar was dead. And the Babylonians had been overthrown by the Persians. While you should worry about the church, you should worry more about the multitudes who are being deceived by lies. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. The most important mission that you have, church, is to discover and live the truth. There's a book out now called Live Not By Lies because that was the last words that Solzhenitsyn said to Russia before he was deported. The last words he said to them was live not by lies. Draw the line in the sand. One of my lines in the sand is I will not say what I do not believe is true. I will not say what I do not believe. I will not live and speak what I believe to be a lie. So, let me close with this. We used to sing a little song when we were kids back in church in Farmersville, Texas. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few. All hail to Daniel's band. Edward Everett Hale, pastor of South South Congregational Church in Boston for 30, 40 years said this, I am only one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, I will do. That's your marching orders today. You're only one person. But you can't do everything, but do something. What you can do, you ought to do, you will do. Amen?